Welcome to Coach House Talks. There's always a moment of truth with these things because, um, you know, you give your text to Jamie and he does something with it and you have no idea what's going to appear on the screen. So I'm always really excited that we're going to get something on the screen. And uh, <laughs> so the title of today's, uh, today's word is All Scripture is God Breathed, Being Courageous Today Before a Living God. And that is the exact words that Andy texted me when he asked me to speak. Now you might recognise that the first part of the title comes from Scripture. Quite a well-known scripture. It's from 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, here's the amazing thing. God always prepares us, doesn't he? Because I'll tell you this. Not one hour before Andy texted me, I'd been reading that scripture. And I'd been considering it and trying to understand something from that scripture. And the reason that I'd been considering it deeply is because I'd noticed that in my Bible, which is a New Living Translation, it's quite a popular version, a lot of people use it, it doesn't say all scripture is God-breathed. And this had troubled me a bit, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So... Before we can understand the problem that I'd seen, we need to understand a little bit about the nature of language. Now, I'm no expert in languages. That's my wife's job. But I do know that it's important to understand that language is not just a means of communication, but that it expresses the values and beliefs of the culture to whom the language belongs. Put more simply, language expresses the things that are important to a society in accordance with what that society's belief system is. That's quite tough, isn't it? If you don't follow it, catch me later. Now, I had a go at learning another language unsuccessfully. You can probably understand that, obviously you know, my wife's Romanian. So if I want to talk to my father-in-law, I've got a real problem because I can't. So I had an attempt, but I failed. Uh, I'll keep trying, but you know, at the moment, it's not really working very well. Now, one of the things that you find out when you try and learn another language is they'll give you a piece of advice, and it's this, that you must understand the culture and beliefs of the people who speak that language in order to be successful in learning it. And that's important when we read our Bible. So, can we apply this knowledge to the Bible? Well, let's think about this for a moment. The culture of the Jewish people who are featured in the Old Testament would have been quite different to that of the people who were living at the time that Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, amongst others, and to the other new believers in the first century AD. And it will be vastly different to the culture that we have today. If we apply this understanding that culture drives differences in the meaning of the words being used, this creates a couple of problems. The first is really simple. It's the difficulty of translating the words. 
How do you translate a word that has no direct equivalent in English? The second problem is understanding the original meaning. If we ourselves don't understand the people who originally wrote the words, how can we understand what the original text is saying? Now, this can make it difficult for a Bible translator to accurately reflect the meaning of certain words. They do try very hard, and we've had a couple of people here explain how that works, but it can be really difficult. And that's definitely the case here in 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, I think I've used some big words before. The Greek word used in 2 Timothy 3.16 is theopneustos. It's a new word for some. I didn't know it. But you can see from this that it's constructed of two parts. Theo, which means God, as in words like theology. So let's get the relationship here so we understand where it's coming from. And the second part is neustos. Now, in the original word, you pronounce the P, but we in English have started dropping the P. So that sounds a bit like pneumatic, doesn't it? So it must have something to do with air. Okay, And this second part of the word is derived from another word, neo, which means to breathe out. It's becoming clearer, isn't it? Now, this verse in the Bible is the only one where this word appears. And that makes it even harder to translate because there's no other context to compare it with. Sometimes Bible translators see a word appearing more than once, and they can get a better context, but this one only appears once, so there's no context. However, uh, what is thought here is it's thought that Paul actually invented this word, theopneustos, to express the relationship between God breathing out and the written word. Hence, all scripture is God-breathed. So it's not a bad English translation. Now, Paul would have known the concept from Hebrew. And what probably happened here is that he found there was no Greek word to express that concept, so he just invented a new one. And we do that today, don't we? So you can accredit this word to Paul, but it's all about the cultural setting that it comes in. Now, bringing that up to date, in today's culture here in the UK... There is no collective belief in God. In fact, most people are quite opposed. And even within communities of faith, of different faiths, there are many who don't believe that the Bible was written by God himself. So it stands to reason that in English, there's no need for an equivalent word to theopneustos. What we need is three words to try and even get close to the concept. And what you can see, therefore, here is that the potential for mistranslation or misunderstanding is increased. Paul's need for a new word is nothing new. And that's because culture is always changing. And therefore, so is language. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this, which might help you to see what I mean. Uh, and this is, yeah... So firstly, a young person today might say this, man, those trainers are wicked. 
I realised later that young people probably wouldn't say man, but they would say those trainers are wicked. Now, we're focusing on the use of the word wicked here. And we probably know that the, the young person is not saying that that pair of shoes could possibly have done something bad. So clearly, this is an example of a word that has somehow changed its use. But how or why? You see, the word wicked is being used in place of the word nice. But now there's an added emphasis that probably that the shoes probably don't conform to what your grandma might have described as sensible shoes. So to see what's happened here, we need to understand the impact of culture. And it's the revised use of the word wicked, because it comes from a rebellious culture where opposition to authority is the norm. Doing good is no longer an important character trait. Now, it's all about bending or breaking the rules. And a consequence of that is that the language used changes to reflect that change of attitude. Now, we're emphasizing rebellion over goodness. Just a little example of how words change. Hopefully, it'll help to put some... Uh, some picture on this. So, what about an example from Scripture? Does the same principle apply? Well, Isaiah verse 28 and verse 16 says, Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Now, this scripture is quoted in the New Testament by both Paul and Peter. In Romans 9.33, Paul writes, I am placing in Jerusalem a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will not be disgraced. Peter wrote in his first letter, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honour, and anyone who trusts in him will not be disgraced. Did you spot the difference? Now, one thing that I do know, and what I've seen, is that sometimes people use the fact that these different versions of the same scripture are different to demonstrate that scripture is fallible. How can it be the accurate word of God when these three examples of the same scripture are all different? Well, far from being different, actually what's happening here is they're telling us something about the culture of the day or the beliefs of the day. Think about this. Think about this for a moment. If God spoke directly to one of us here today, would he do it in Hebrew? If he did, we probably wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about. Now, you'd probably still be struggling if God just swapped the Hebrew words for English ones, because the structure of Hebrew and English is very different. God would speak to us in our own language, wouldn't he? So when speaking with a Greek speaker, which includes Paul and Paul's immediate readers... <laughs> God has used a language applicable to them. And notice what it is that's changed. To the Jews in Isaiah's time, 
The foundation, or the cornerstone, was interpreted as meaning the temple in Jerusalem. To the Jews, everything was about the temple. They believed that it was God's dwelling place here on earth. And that's not without good reason, because that's what it says in many places in the Old Testament. Now, Paul and Peter have both introduced the word he into the scripture. This is because after Jesus, Christians now understood that it was Jesus who's the cornerstone and not the literal stones of the temple. Jesus died and rose again in Jerusalem. He is the one who causes people to stumble. He is the one in whom we trust. The temple was destroyed, but Jesus is alive. So remember what we said before, that an important part of language is what the writer believes. Paul and Peter are both expressing their belief, which has now moved on, and they were and still are urging their readers to do the same. Moving on in culture and belief. So, now we understand that, let's go back to what I said before, that I didn't like the New Living Translation. So what's the problem? The NLT translates this verse as all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, now here's a worse shocking fact. The King James also mistranslates this verse as all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You didn't know the King James had uh, some wrong in it, did you? Basically saying the same as the NLT, but it's still wrong. So what's the problem? Why is it wrong? Well, here's the problem. If I'm using the word inspired or inspiration, considering that in our Western cultural context, I'm suggesting that the words have been born out of an idea. Yes, that idea has come from God, but the idea was written down by ordinary people, and ordinary people who are, like you or I, fallible. It must also, therefore, because of the reasons we've already established, contain interpretations based on the value of the society at the time it was written. Now, if that's the case, then I need to interpret the scripture in the light of societal values that apply today. Now, hopefully you can see that that's wrong. It's very wrong. Andy reminded us last week, <clears throat> God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. It's us who change. Our society changes, and generally not in a good way. Perhaps it would help us to understand this a bit more if we look at the context of Paul's letter to Timothy. And one of the things that we teach here at the Coach House is that we never take scripture in isolation. We always consider the wider context within what that scripture sits. Where's the word in the verse? Where's the verse in the chapter? Where's the chapter in the book? Where's the book in the whole Bible? So the statement that all scripture is God-breathed is not written in isolation. Paul said this for a reason, which is 
to make a point to Timothy and also to us about how to live. Remember, we're living in a gap. The title of our series is Mind the Gap. And this gap started as soon as Jesus ascended to heaven and will not end until he returns. So the reason that Paul made this comment is just as valid today as it was back then because we're still in the gap. So going back to a bit earlier in the chapter, chapter 3, so back to verse 1 for the context. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful, proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Now, I think this quite neatly sums up Western culture just as it is today. And because we're part of this culture, we use the language of this culture, and we think like this culture. This is why we need to change our thinking. As I said at the beginning, if you want to learn another language, you have to understand the culture. To do this, you have to consciously choose to do so. You have to choose to learn, and you have to put some effort in to get the result. Remember Andy's point from last week about salvation? (laughs) Which proves I was listening last week. We have to choose to work out our salvation. And this is because, as Hebrews 13.14 says, this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. So if we're going to live somewhere else, it would be better for us if we were more culturally, culturally aligned to the place where we're going. Now, us Brits are famous for going around the world and taking our cultural values with us. Think about Benidorm for a moment. It should come as no surprise that we don't always fit in. Yeah? Expat communities tend to stick together as they have that shared culture and they know that outside of their community they might get into problems when they don't follow local cultural norms. Sometimes you can only get into a place if you know the culture. In the book of Judges, there's a good example of this. And in fact, this account also demonstrates the point that language can also convey important cultural differences. So it's bringing it together a little bit. So if you think that I'm talking rubbish in places, here in the Bible it's showing you that it is important if you want to get into somewhere. Now in chapter 12 of Judges... It's the Ephraimites who are being rebellious, one of the clans of Judah. They've crossed the Jordan River and are now wanting to get back into the Promised Land. Yefta is the judge and was the leader of the people at that time. 
and he is determined to only allow in those people who belong. Think of a parallel to that. The Ephraimites were not culturally aligned with the Ephter standards and so were being kept out of the promised land. Here's what it says in Judges chapter 12 from verse 5. Yefter captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River, and whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge him. Are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim, they would ask. If the man said, no, I am not, they would tell him to say, Shibboleth. If he was from Ephraim, he would say, Sibboleth. Because the people of Ephraim cannot pronounce that word correctly. Then they would take him at the shallow crossings and kill him. Now this might seem like Yefta's being a bit unfair, but there are rules that apply to getting into the promised land. And sometimes in life we just have to follow the rules and work to get ourselves culturally aligned. So what difference can it make to our alignment if we change our understanding of Scripture from just being God-inspired to all Scripture is God-breathed? Fundamentally, it will mean that we have a new perspective on Scripture. We will no longer see the words as being reflective of a particular time and place. We will see them as eternal, never changing the words of God himself. Remember... God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see the words as being representative of God's culture. That culture that we will need if we are going to be with, at home with him in eternity. The disciple John introduces his gospel with the following words. In the beginning... The Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when John refers, refers to the Word, he's referring to the written Word, or as we now know it, the Old Testament. But then he says, the Old Testament is God. See, I've just swapped the word Word for Old Testament He's saying the Old Testament is God. Remember when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, he's talking initially about the Old Testament. Now, that is probably not something that most of us would recognize today. So how can this be understood? In order to understand what John is saying at the beginning of his gospel, we need to understand something from Jewish culture. Now, I might have mentioned this one before, so apologies if you've already heard it. You might need reminding of it. But we need to look at one of the many rules that the Jews made up, which followed scriptural principles, but nevertheless were made up rules. Now, Jesus had a bit to say about those things at times, didn't he, if you think through some of the stuff Jesus said. Now, these rules were contained in a book called the Talmud, and they're not for us to follow in any way but they do provide an interesting insight into how the Jewish people in the first century might have understood the Gospels and the letters that Paul and others wrote. This is the rule. It's that the scripture, 
cannot be read in the synagogue unless there are 10 adult men present. That's the rule. And this cohort is called a minyan. I'd like to give you a new word. If you've heard it before, well done. If you haven't, there's a new word for you. Now, this principle comes from Abraham's prayer for Sodom in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 32. So if you remember, Abraham asks God to spare Sodom from the destruction which God has promised. He starts out, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city? And God says, yeah, all right. So gradually, Abraham bargains God down in number, 50 to 40, 40 to 30, 30 to 20, 20 to 10. And there, he stops. So, there must be a minion, that is at least 10 adult men, in the synagogue before the scripture can be read. Ah, hang on, wait a minute. There's a second principle that comes into play here that modifies the first one. So there's an exception to the rule, isn't there? I love this one. And this is this. What happens if there's only nine men in the synagogue? Well, that's okay because the scrolls themselves contain the word of God. And these words are, as Paul says, God breathed. The words display the very nature and character of God. Therefore, they are God. God is clearly an adult man, and therefore, he's the tenth person. So, hallelujah, the scroll can be read. Now, I tell you that because it helps you to understand what John has just written. And if you don't know that, you might wonder why John wrote what he wrote. Now, fortunately, we don't have to hold to this rule, but it's helping us to understand what John is saying when he says the word of God. Taken in isolation, John is just affirming that the belief that the Jews had that the written Old Testament was equal to God himself is correct. But John is going to take this thought one step further because he's going to prove a point. When John says the word of God, the original readers would have understood this as the word of God the Father. The word is God the Father. As the Father was the only person of the Godhead that they would have recognized at that time. John goes on to say in verse 14... So the word became human and made his home among us. Now, John is speaking about Jesus. Again, in his first letter, John writes something quite similar. He writes, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. John is saying that the Word is God the Son. See the change here? He's telling people that the person that they'd seen and touched, Jesus, was equal to the Father. This required believers to change their belief and their culture and ultimately their language. When Paul wrote, all scripture is God-breathed, 
he was referring to the Old Testament. But we can now, of course, include the Old Testament, uh, include the New Testament in this. It is the whole of Scripture that reveals to us the very nature of God, never changing and never to be interpreted by the standards of our culture or our time. The title of the message asks us to be courageous before a living God, and it takes courage to step out of the culture of this age and into God's eternal, never-changing culture. Two weeks ago, Johnny Knight quoted from Romans 12, verse 2. And this scripture is part of the DNA of this church. I've heard it quoted by many speakers over the 38 years that I've been here. And it says this, Do not let the world squeeze you into its mould. In this case, don't allow the culture of this day and age to cause you to misinterpret scripture. Resolve to work at understanding the cultural context of each Bible text you read. So here's the challenge. Will you allow Jesus to speak to you directly from his word and allow his breath to change you, to be more culturally aligned with him as the day of his return approaches? Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.